With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey everybody, I'm Logan Camden. I'm Carson Brabber. And this is Nerd Sesh. No! Oh my god, how could he do that? Are you on? What? Charles Darwin. All right. Well, Logan, the NBA season is officially over, and it was a year of chaos. Some teams obviously haven't even played in many months, and so it's easy to forget about some of the guys who disappointed in that stretch or who overachieved and impressed us. And today what we're going to do is look back on that season and also look forward and talk about the guys who, after this year, have the most to prove heading into next season because I think with with some of the moves that were made, with some of the disappointing campaigns we had, I think there's a great deal of guys who have a lot riding on this coming season as far as their legacies, their reputations, and their resumes go. So let's start off with you, Logan. Who is one candidate to you who has a lot to prove going into next season? I, uh, I lump two of them together because they're on the same team. Uh, I'm taking Kyrie and KD as my first guys who really have something to prove this upcoming season. Uh, starting off with Kyrie, I mean, on three Cleveland teams that never won more than 33 games in his first few years in the league, and now, now obviously in Cleveland he hit one of the biggest shots of all time in Game 7 versus the Warriors, and they're not winning the title without him, but he really has yet to prove that he can be the guy. Two years in Boston, a Eastern Conference Finals loss to LeBron, uh, a semifinal exit to Milwaukee. I do think the Nets fit Kyrie a little better because he has a bigger superstar to rely on. Either way, with his off-court nonsense, with his injury concerns, Kyrie has got a big chip on his shoulder going into next season. Uh, as for Durant coming off a torn Achilles injury, I think he may have the most to improve uh, to prove in the next five years. And like you said, Carson, it will really determine how we see these guys' legacy as a whole. Um, if Durant comes out here and puts up 26-6-6, and leads the Nets to the finals, I think it validates his rings in 2017 and 2018 with the Warriors and uh, maybe pushes up his value as a superstar in a championship team. But if KD and the Nets have anything less than a title appearance, I think that Kevin Durant will be relentlessly slandered and drugged through the mud once more. Uh, 2021 seems like it's shaping up to be the Nets' year to run through the East. Yes, the complexity of the league will change drastically as we go through the offseason, season where Giannis goes, how free agency and the draft shake out. But right now, I think the Nets' biggest competition is what the Miami Heat, the Celtics, the Raptors. Uh, I would argue, barring a major jump from anyone, the Nets' two best players are better than any of these teams' best player, although Jimmy Butler is certainly up there. Um, but KD has the most to prove out of anyone because 
for a seven-foot shooting, slashing, scoring kind of beast we have literally never seen before, all he has to show to this point in his career is a finals appearance, two Mickey Mouse kind of rings, and a couple of scoring titles. Mickey Mouse kind of rings. Strong language, Logan. I would argue that the level he played at in those finals sort of shuts down that narrative. And last we saw Kevin Durant, he was, to me, definitively the second best player in the world. Pre-injury, in the last playoffs he took part in, he was averaging 34.2 a game, was the two-time reigning finals MVP, pretty much king of the world, was on route to a wrapped-up third straight title, because I think we're all aware that that fully healthy Warriors team is knocking the socks off of that Raptors team that deserving champions, but obviously they came up against a team that was not what it would have been at its full strength. But KD still does have a lot to prove, because he's 32 years old now, and he is trying to get into that echelon of top 10 players of all time, and right now he's on the outside of it. He has the opportunity for the crowning achievement, and if KD never does anything relevant again, if he is unfortunately another player whose career has been destroyed by an Achilles tear, then that is unfortunate. It was a great career nonetheless, but that is not what he is aspiring to at this point. He wants to be remembered as potentially the guy of this generation, and he has some serious ground to make up now because LeBron is in an incredible situation and he just added to his resume in a big way and he is not seeming to go away and we forget quickly because this Nets team would have been the presumed favorite coming out of the East had they been healthy and it's just crazy because we basically didn't see either of these guys this year. Now, Kyrie, when he did play, was basically playing the best basketball of his life. It wasn't contributing to winning. The Nets were 8-12 and with him. They were better without him throughout the season, but... Individually, 27.4 a game on 48, 39, 92 splits, the level of shot making with the ball in his hands. It was just like, it was magical. There were so many magical Kyrie moments offensively, even in just those 20 games. But of course, the thing with him is when my primary objective is to win games, he's not always the first guy I want. And that's why I would certainly take a guy like Jimmy over him. And that goes back to before Jimmy's heroic run throughout these playoffs. So... We'll see. I think that he has to show that he can coexist with KD. I think we need to see what this supporting cast is because you cannot win a title with two guys. It will always be linked to their legacies, though, as the faces of the team. So we'll see what happens with the rest of this roster. I saw you made that face, I guess, because the Lakers just kind of did it. But their supporting cast played really well every single time they needed it. And the Nets pieces aren't quite as complimentary. We'll see what happens with Levert. We'll see what happens with Dinwiddie. These kind of guys who are talented but need the ball in their hands Kyrie Irving and KD are not giving the ball up to other people at this point. And I would like to see maybe some more 3 and D wings thrown in there. Uh, I think that Jared Allen can be effective alongside them as that rim-running, rim-protecting center. But a great burden falls on them because even though they have both accomplished so much in their careers, we forget very quickly. And because they were not relevant this season, they do have that chip on their shoulders now. There is another young duo that I want to talk about that involves a former Brooklyn Net that I think has a great deal to prove. So I'm going to take your trick there, and I'm going to do these two guys together, D'Angelo Russell and Carl Anthony Towns, because these are two phenomenally talented young basketball players. Cat was off to a historic pace last year, averaging 26.5, 11, and 4.5, was improved as a playmaker, was a three-point weapon at the center position like we've never seen before, hitting them at that volume, at that consistency, with that degree of difficulty. But they were also 10-25, and 25, and then at a certain point, the Timberwolves were so bad that Cat just mailed it in and said, I'm not going to play anymore because he had no point endured a season-ending injury. Fair enough, your team sucks, I understand that. And D'Lo was sort of in the same situation because two years ago, he was the sole offensive engine of a playoff team, an inspiring story, a deserved all-star, at 22 years old, 
And then last year, we saw him basically epitomize empty numbers with a terrible roster in a situation where it seemed, even with Steph out there, like he wasn't the right fit because these guys struggled to complement each other. I thought maybe they would move Steph off ball a little bit more. They didn't really do that. D'Lo wasn't effective off the ball, and defensively, it was disastrous. So, that is what they're coming off of. Two really talented guys who are now five years deep in their careers and really have nothing to show for it as far as winning. And fair enough, obviously the best guys generally don't win until they're 27 or older, but you're making the playoffs for the most part. And these guys are exceptional in their talent level and the fact that they haven't done that. But when I look at what this has the potential to be, I think it has the potential to be the best pick-and-roll duo in basketball. And D'Lo is a guy who loves the pick-and-roll, runs heavy amounts of it, hasn't been top-notch as far as efficiency out of the pick-and-roll. I think he needs to make quicker decisions because he does like to sort of lull defenders to sleep. It's a little bit Harden-esque. He dribbles the ball a lot and takes his time, but his handle, his change of pace, his shot-making from deep, from floater range, which is his greatest weapon, is just special, and the guy can make some unreal passes. I also would contend... Maybe the reason we haven't seen his pick-and-roll offense be as efficient as some of the truly elite pick-and-roll ball handlers is he's never had that pick-and-roll running mate, anything like Carl Anthony Towns, who also hasn't necessarily preferred the pick-and-roll in his career, but has never had a competent pick-and-roll ball handler. So you just look at the options that they're going to have out of it. The pick-and-pop will be unstoppable. Cat is now a good enough passer to where he could be a weapon off of the short roll as a decision-maker. I just think there's so many ways they can kill teams And so offensively, I do not have questions. I obviously worry about the guys around them, but these two are going to put up their numbers just like they've done time and again. At the same time, they are huge defensive liabilities in a largely inept organization with a roster that doesn't exactly inspire me. Malik Beasley is going to be their third best player as things currently stand, and we'll see what they do with the top pick in the draft. But these are two guys who have not won yet. They have to do that now. D'Lo has only won more than a third of his games in one season out of five. Cat has only gone 500 in one season. And do you know what they were that year with Cat on the floor, but without Jimmy Butler? They were 10 and 13, sub 500. They were incredibly good with Jimmy Butler on the floor, which I think is one of the more underrated accomplishments in Jimmy's career, which I tend to harp on. But this is going to be year six for these guys. And year five went down the gutter for both of them. And it starts to sneak up on you fast as far as the expectations to win and produce. And I think that's why we saw this kind of big time shift in both of these guys' organizations. Because the Timberwolves said, okay, we need to make Cat content now. Because he is not happy. We may have him locked up on this massive contract. That does not mean he is a guarantee to stay with the way that the current NBA works. And... D'Lo is the kind of guy who offensively can be that compliment, can be that all-star level guy, maybe not out west, but certainly a top 30 guy in the league at his best, and we'll see if we get that, and we'll see if it translates to winning, but I think that there is a huge deal of pressure on both of these guys. You mentioned expectations for this roster. Carson, what do you think, what is the team's ceiling? I mean, obviously they have the duo, but of D'Lo and Cat, what do you think their ceiling is wins-wise or playoff-wise in the west? I'll be honest. With the Warriors coming back, I don't see how they make the playoffs because I don't see that team that's taking a step back. The Jazz obviously had their flaws in the bubble, but they were also doing that without Bojan Bogdanovich. The Mavs were the seventh seed, and they were also the greatest offense of all time, and they are only trending up, and I'm certainly not going to bet on this Timberwolves team over that Warriors team. So I think they're in a brutal spot where... There, there are these expectations, and I'm not sure they're going to be able to live up to them as far as team success, but if you are competitive, if you are in that conversation, then there's at least hope, because last year, these guys were on 
the teams that are currently holding the top two picks in the NBA draft, and they cannot be separated from that as the stars and the leading men on those teams. So a follow-up then, to compete, what do you think they need to go out and get? Do they need to get a defensive big man alongside Cat like Aaron Baines? Do they need a shooter like Joe Harris, wing, de- wing defense like Jeremy Grant? Who who should be the primary target for this Timberwolves uh, front office in the offseason? I think Jeremy Grant would be an incredible addition because I think that when you look at who they're throwing out there at the wing spots, Jarrett Culver, miserable rookie campaign. Josh Okoge, still so inconsistent as a shooter. You know, they found a little bit of a diamond in the rough in Nas Reed at the center spot. I don't think they necessarily need to upgrade there. Jake Lehman was okay when he was out there. Juancho Hernan Gomez, okay. But these are not the kind of guys who are generally starting caliber players on playoff teams. Nas Reed isn't in that conversation. I just wanted to shout him out because he was actually playing pretty well in garbage time throughout the season. But that, to me, is where I see the upgrade. They need those 3 and D wings because they really just need guys that can knock down shots around these two and that can compete highly on the defensive end. And we'll see how Malik Beasley plays into this team because obviously he was getting buckets for them. And as a sixth man, I think he can be a weapon. I'm not sure how he fits alongside them as a starter. Maybe it works because he is athletic. And if he gives effort defensively, they could survive there. But I think that they have a good deal of reshaping that they need to do. And what is most intriguing to me is where do they go with that number one pick? And can that guy help them win immediately? I mean... I don't know what the Timberwolves should do because they obviously need so much help defensively, and I don't think James Wiseman, uh, another big man alongside Cat, I don't think that works. I think Anthony Edwards may be an interesting way to fill that in. Um, this is a big offseason for the Timberwolves, and I mean, I, they have the assets here to do it, to compete. It's just about making the right moves, and with D'Lo and Cat in place, I expect... I expect a bit of a playoff push because, yes, while the West is completely deep, we saw how injuries rattled teams like the Warriors. There's going to be another few teams like that out in the West where the Timberwolves are going to be able to be that scrappy eight seed like the Suns were this season and make a genuine push, I think, towards the end of the year. Yeah, and I think that they should be in that conversation. My thing is just I see eight clearly better all-around teams out West and possibly more depending on how the Pelicans continue to progress and the Grizzlies and maybe the Suns. So we'll see how that all transpires. I'm not really confident in the playoff push, and then I think that's not a good look for either of these guys. Let's move on. Who else do you see having this much to prove going into next year? I'm going to throw it back out east, and I'm going to go with Jason Tatum. Moreover, the Celtics organization as a whole, because Tatum has been insane, and what he's done for this Boston organization will be saw out of the playoffs from him this year. Uh, the Celtics squad has six straight seasons of making the playoffs with Brad Stevens at the helm. Uh, you saw a few runs with Isaiah Thomas. They made the Eastern Conference Finals in 2017, an Eastern Conference run with Kyrie Horford, a young Jay Tatum in 2018, and another Eastern Conference Finals appearance this season with the young talent of Jay Tatum, Jalen Brown, and Kemba Walker. Basically, the Celtics have been loaded with talent, and they've got to come up with something for it. And the only way I see that happening this upcoming season for the Celtics is if Jason Tatum can take that superstar leap and be the leader of this team. Playoff Jason Tatum was a completely different beast than regular season Jason Tatum. An increase in rebounds, assists, points in the playoffs, a first all-star, uh, excuse me, a first all-star team selection last season, even an All-NBA selection. Five 30-point games in this year's playoffs. He didn't score less than 15 in any of them. He was an absolute rock for the Celtics squad. And I know he's got that takeover scorer in him. That's exactly what this team needs to get over the hump and get to the finals. Over half of his games in these playoffs, he took over 20 shots. He had five games where he attempted 10 or more threes. Tatum wants the ball, and he wants to score. He's a killer waiting to be let loose. And so, yeah, it's... uh, 
it's a back last season up, show me more year for Jason Tatum, in my opinion. I know he's young, but if he can take that superstar leap that Carson, you have talked about time and time again on this show and projected many times, the ceiling that this Celtic team goes from Eastern Conference runner-up to NBA champions very quick in my eyes. I look at one number when I think about how Jason Tatum underachieved in this past season because obviously it was an incredible transformation we saw from him. This is a guy who from his rookie to sophomore years didn't take the jump we wanted to see at all, was taking tough mid-range shots repeatedly, wasn't getting downhill, getting the line, got better in every way, started taking better shots, improved as a playmaker, took another step defensively. But the one number I come back to is 5.6 points per game in fourth quarters throughout the playoffs on 36% from the field, 29% from three. That's just not good enough. And it's not fair maybe to put that entire burden on a 22-year-old who was in his third NBA season. But we're talking about a level of talent here and an organizational infrastructure and a roster that should have been in the NBA Finals. And with great talent comes great expectations. And that is what I put on Jason Tatum. I have complete faith that he can continue to take that step forward. And I think that it just comes down to him having that killer mentality of being the best guy in the big spots. We saw, even if he was taking those shots, they weren't necessarily great shots. And yes, we can commend his sidestep three, but when you're dribbling down the clock for 20 seconds and taking a 30-foot sidestep three that is also pretty well contested, and it's in a string of possessions where you haven't gotten downhill, you haven't been aggressive in that way, that to me is a condemnation of your mentality late in games. And I think that we saw a couple instances where that was his go-to late. So... This roster is there, 100%. And this in no means falls single-handedly on Tatum. Kemba obviously should have been better throughout these playoffs, but they did have guys like Marcus Smart really step up and play at a high level. Probably shot them out of their final game a little bit, but for the most part was really good. But it comes down to Tatum to be that best guy. And as I've said, maybe that's an unfair burden on a 22-year-old, but I don't really think it is when you consider the talent that he has demonstrated and the winning situation that the Celtics are in right now. Yeah, and I don't think expectations matter, right? We see guys like LeBron, Kobe, and I'm not, it's not like I'm saying that Jason Tatum is built like these guys, but if you want to take that superstar leap, if you want to win a title, it's something that you have to do, and Jason Tatum clearly has the ability to do that outside of other young guys in uh, Boston, like Jalen Brown. He's got a different role. And let me be clear, I think he should be compared to those kind of guys. Yes, those are top 10 players of all time. LeBron is a top two basketball player of all time. So it's a different tier, but that is what you're gunning for when you're at this talent level. That's the kind of mentality I get from Donovan Mitchell. Donovan Mitchell is going to go out there, put his team on his back and do every single thing he can. And he may not be as naturally God-given talented as Jason Tatum, but he certainly outperformed him in this playoff run. Yeah, and just a last young guy I want to mention because we're on the mentality aspect. Devin Booker's got a killer in him. I can't wait until they can get him some pieces around him to go win a title in Phoenix. He's a guy who I considered for this list just because the narrative has somehow survived that he is not a winning player as if that falls on him. And he's the most versatile scoring guard in basketball, Logan. I say it every time we talk about him. The guy can do everything offensively, and I just want to see the team's success follow. I will talk now, though, about a guy who is actually in no means to this point in his career winning basketball player. We talked about the Warriors a little bit, what we expect from them this season. I have two guys. Andrew Wiggins and Draymond Green. But I want to talk about Wiggins first. Because Andrew Wiggins, former number one NBA draft pick, has played six seasons. He's a career 47% two-point shooter. Terrible. A career 33.2% shooter from deep. Never shot 36%. Not promising considering the role that he's supposed to fill. Last year, 34% of his field goal attempts came from three, which was a career high, a step forward, but not where he needs to be in my opinion. 
And on the defensive end, players have, on average, shot better than their normal field goal percentage when Wiggins is their primary defender every single year of his career. Every single one of those things has to change, in my opinion, because as I mentioned, Wiggins took strides last year. Only 14% of his shots came from mid-range. That was a new low. I thought that he was a better decision maker, career-high 3.7 assists per game. We saw him show flashes as even a pick-and-roll ball handler at times, making reads and passes that we hadn't seen from him previously. But now that he is in the in the Golden State system, his role is changing. And he needs to not only give constant effort on defense, but to cut out the mental lapses there. Because this is a guy who was who was promoted as a potential Kobe Jordan type wing defender because of his physical build. And he just doesn't perceive the game on that level. And he hasn't been in many winning situations, so he hasn't given effort there. He needs to improve there. He needs to be a better pure shooter of the basketball and understand that his role is very different right now, where he's going to have to take advantage of spacing and be active as a cutter, and that he's not going to get much one-on-one ISO offense that he has at times probably relied on too much in his career in Minnesota. Because this is a guy who is now in as good of a basketball system as there is and is fighting the reputation that he has earned himself as an inefficient bust on losing teams whose first two nicknames in basketball reference have Jordan in them. Maple Jordan is what they call this guy. He was billed as an elite defensive prospect, but he sucked there. And now he was the centerpiece of a deal involving a guy in D'Angelo Russell who was at that point a 23-year-old all-star. And this is a team that has very high expectations and is also coming off of an incredibly disappointing season. And fair or not, Andrew Wiggins has been billed as part of the cure. Part of the equation that is going to take this Warriors team over the top. So I might argue that there is nobody with more to prove this year than Andrew Wiggins. Because this is his opportunity. This is his lifeline. And if it doesn't work in Golden State, it's just not going to work. So we need to see him embrace the system. Embrace the identity. Improve as a shooter. He needs to grind on that. Be a smarter cutter. And yes, maybe we see some secondary playmaking for him. That could be exciting. But he's not the star whatsoever. And I think that we're all aware of that. It's just seeing if he can embrace that. Because... That is something that is tougher to do in practice and is easier said than done. The other guy, though, is Draymond Green, who was just hideous last year. Worst year of his basketball career since he was basically unheralded, in my opinion. Averaging 8-6-6 on 39% shooting, 28% from deep. And this was obviously a miserable situation for him because Draymond is the kind of guy who has always benefited incredibly from having talent around him and can be a ceiling raiser because he's that all-world kind of defender and he's such a brilliant playmaker. But... When he has to try to create for himself off the dribble and take these tough floaters or these ugly threes, it's really tough to watch. And his shot is beyond broken at this point. This is now two straight seasons where he's shooting 28%, and he will now be 31 years old. His defense this year, you can attribute it to situation to the fact that they weren't playing winning basketball and that he didn't have the talent around him was not what he used to be. We will see if he can get back there because they will need him as that defensive anchor. They will need him as that transition initiator. They will need him as that weapon off the short roll. And if he doesn't revive it this year, then it's just over. I don't think that we're ever getting back to anything close to peak Draymond Green if it is over. And I have always been a guy who is adamantly anti-Draymond is overrated because if you watch that team in 2015-16, you know that he was the second best player on that basketball team that should have won the title. He's that kind of special. But he is not living up to that reputation right now. And there's a reason he's been swirling in trade rumors. I'm not sure what team other than Golden State would want to take him on. Because in my opinion, if he's not in this right basketball situation, I don't think we get to see Draymond again. And I really want to see what he looks like this year. I completely agree on the Draymond take. My question for you though, Carson, is... So Wiggins played last season without obviously having Curry and Thompson on the court. I know what you want to see from him 
what do you expect his role in this offense is actually going to be? Just a spot-up shooter, just a cutter, uh, a secondary ball handler for Steph? With all the with the Warriors at full health, what is his role? I honestly think it's Harrison Barnes and maybe a little something extra. Like, he has to be benefit from the stars around him. He is not going to be creating for himself one-on-one much because that is inefficient offense. That has been inefficient offense for his entire career, and the Golden State Warriors are not going to tolerate inefficient offense if it's not going through one of their two, if Draymond is still at that level, three stars. And that's what it comes down to to me, which is why I don't think it's necessarily the most cohesive basketball fit just because, yes, you look at Andrew Wiggins and you think you can mold him into a good shooter and a good defender, but he has literally never been either of those things. And now is the time to see if with this strange offseason, if he can mold into that role because he will need to or he will not succeed there. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that, I don't think Wiggins is going to create because that's Steph's job. I think that we do see, I think Wiggins is going to eat this year, Carson. Like, I think that some of your concerns are going to go away as the season continues. Not defensively. I don't know what we're going to see from him on that end. But just with the fact that Curry and Thompson are going to be on the court stretching the floor, it's going to create some Jalen Brown-type opportunities for Wiggins where he's just left alone. My concern is if he doesn't take that step defensively, I don't know how good this Warriors team is going to be on that end. And that is obviously, it's one of the most overstated things in basketball, but that is what defined those initial teams. They were always a top five defense, and if they don't get back there, then they're not a contender, that's for sure. And maybe their goal is just to be a fun playoff team. That's fine, and that's what they are probably more likely to be than a legitimate contender. Although if you ask Peyton D. Gallagher, then they're his pick to win the title. But I think that they want more than that, and I think that they are capable of I don't know how they match up against the L.A. teams, but they are certainly capable of being the third team out West. So, let's move on. Who else do you think has something big to prove? Uh, My next guy is, uh, we're staying in the West, it's Kristaps Porzingis. So, uh, Luka Doncic is going to be the second best player in basketball next season, at least on the offensive end. And (laughs) Porzingis is going to have to have a massive leap in performance if the Mavericks want to genuinely compete for a title out West, which I have full confidence that they can do with an offseason to build up this roster. And it's just going to be contingent on Porzingis. And don't get my argument confused. All the pressure that I'm talking about, it's, it's not from the trade because I think that any team like the Mavs is going to give up what they gave for Porzingis. The pressure is going to be that from this, how he has stylistically changed how he's played basketball from his time in New York. Carson, you pointed this fact out a long time ago on Nerd Session. I wanted to compare the numbers. 43.2% of Kristaps Porzingis' shots come from behind the arc uh, last season. Compare this to other big men. Nikola Jokic, 23.8% of his shots come from deep. Joel Embiid, 21.5% of his shots come from deep. And a guy we just talked about, Carl Anthony Towns, 44.5% of his shots come from deep. Now, Towns, he can get away with it. I think he's the greatest shooting big man of all time, and he sprayed it over a 40% clip last season. Also, he can get away with it because 32% of his shots come from within three feet. The issue with Porzingis is he is afraid to go inside. 19% of his shots came in from inside three feet. That's embarrassing for a player that is seven foot three. I don't care that he plays power forward. You're that big. I need you inside. I need you getting buckets where you can dominate. The Mavericks' performance next season is going to revolve around how effective he can be. Coming off a few injury-riddled seasons and a drastic change in play style, it's going to be a major concern for Rick Carlisle and company, and I just want to see a different Kristaps. It's not fun basketball to watch a 7'3 guy just hucking threes. I'm going to add to that statistic because... 
To compare KP to other big men as far as his percentage of shots from three, not totally fair because he's so much of a better shooter than a certainly Embiid. You don't want Embiid taking even 21% of his shots from deep. But I will just compare Kristaps from this past season to Kristaps from his last season in New York when he was the best we've ever seen him. 26% of his shots came from three that year. And it's not just that he's attempting so many threes this year. It's also the the terrible post fades that he's repeatedly taking where it doesn't matter who he gets on him. He could have Marcus Smart. He could have someone smaller than that. He's shooting an 18-foot turnaround, and it's inefficient offense. So it's though it's the timid post play combined with the fact that he's not willing to get inside whatsoever that makes him a weakness because Kristaps is an athlete, dude. He's an athletic guy, and the fact that Maxi Kleba and Dwight Powell are the ones who were eating up those dunks that are so easy to come by when you're playing with Luka Doncic, who was a pick-and-roll maestro and the best lob thrower in basketball. You have to be more aggressive than that when you are a 7-3 athletic guy, and now, instead of the three becoming what everyone expects, and they still can't affect for the most part because he's so much taller than you, when you have that legitimate threat to either pop or roll, you're talking about a special pairing right now, but instead it's like, they have a separate role man. Their role man is Dwight Powell. And then KP, you know, is going to pop every time. That's stupid. KP is better than that. When I saw KP play in 2017-18, I thought that guy could be a top five player in basketball someday, man. With his offensive versatility, with his defensive prowess. And what we're seeing right now is a guy who's clearly not an all-star. And whether or not he had a good game is contingent upon whether or not he made his jump shots. And yeah, for a great jump shooter, that makes sense to a certain extent, but... I don't know, man. You just got to get to the line more than he does. You got to get downhill more than he does. You got to catch more lobs more than he does. And that is just what's upsetting to me about KP. He doesn't play like a big man. And obviously he has skills that many other big men don't. But there are still parts of it that you have to just recognize your size. Yeah, I completely agree. And (laughs) this is going to sound funny, Carson. Kristaps Porzingis plays basketball the way I play 2K. I just get my big man, I call for a screen, I get the fade, and then I kick it out to him. It's it's timid basketball, and like you said, a high percentage of his shots come from 3 to 10 feet as well. It's it's fundamentally bad basketball for the Mavericks when you have a player the caliber of Luka Doncic, and it's sad that he has to rely on a three-point shooting Porzingis when he has so many other faculties of his game that he could dominate in. And I think the most important thing is that the ceiling of this team 100% goes with KP because Luka is, as you mentioned, going to be one of the absolute best players in basketball this coming season. He already was this year, obviously, and we saw it extended into the playoffs where he single-handedly carried his team to a victory. And KP was playing well in the playoffs when he was healthy, but that was just because he was making his shots. And he needs to have more versatility offensively than that because they can't, in my opinion, win a championship with Luka Doncic and just floor spacers around him. That's a way to be very good. They have put, in my opinion, guys who play above their talent level because they complement Luka well in guys like Tim Hardaway Jr. and Seth Curry and Maxi Kleba, who love those open looks that they get created. That's fantastic. Put a bunch of shooters around him. In KP, though, you have that guy who should be the shooting threat, the lob threat, and also the kind of guy you can throw the ball into and he can spin off of somebody out of the post and get himself a dunk. He should be the complement. He should be the second guy who unlocks everything for this team and can also be that rim protector. And we did not see that full package this year. And obviously, incredibly difficult circumstances. The guy hadn't played basketball in two years, but I just need more out of KP. Speaking of not playing basketball in two years, my next guy who I think has a bunch to prove is John Wall, who has three years left 
on his mega contract in which he will learn $133 million. He will be the fourth highest paid player in basketball this year, making $11 million more than his counterpart Bradley Beal, also making more than LeBron, Kevin Durant, other people of this echelon. And he has played 73 basketball games in three years. I feel like we kind of need to walk down the timeline of John Wall's recent career because I almost don't remember watching him play basketball. I think that for me, a guy who is anti-inefficient point guards who sort of obviously can't knock down the three consistently, those kind of guys tend to raise a bit of a red flag for me. (coughs) Russell Westbrook. But um, in 2016-17, when Russell Westbrook won MVP, Wall had by far the best season of his career. He was deservedly All-NBA. He averaged 23-11. and The Wizards won 49 games and a playoff series, and Wall averaged 27-10 and in the playoffs. And then we started to see the chronic knee injuries start where he had only 41 games played in 2017-18. His scoring came back down to earth to about 19 a game, which is what you normally expect from John Wall because he's never really been that consistent mid-20 scorer like he was in 2016-17. But then he did find that level again in the playoffs, averaged 26-6 and 11 and a half. And then 2018-19, way more injury troubles, still averaged 21-9 and in 32 games, but it was not pretty efficiency or winning-wise. And then obviously last year missed the entire season after an Achilles tear. So obviously the Achilles tear is the most frightening thing because that's the worst injury for a basketball player. And this is a guy who was 30 years old, has had chronic knee injuries, and is more defined by his ex- explosivity as an athlete than just about anyone else in basketball. If he's not explosive, he will not be good. And I also think that he has a lot to prove because he is in a completely different situation than he was when we last saw him play actual minutes because Bradley Beal is now the kind of guy who can get you 30 and 6. And that means that there are some major adjustments to be made for John Wall. Over the past four seasons, 40% of Wall's offense came out of pick and roll in two different seasons out of those four. And in 2018-19, the most recent, it was basically a third of his offense still. Beal is a guy who likes to run the pick and roll, has gone from five a game to six a game to nine and a half last year. And every season has been significantly more efficient than John Wall out of the pick and roll. So Wall is not going to be that ball-dominant point guard that he was when we last saw him. He's not going to be running 10 pick-and-rolls a game anymore. He has to, in my opinion, become active as a cutter, use his athleticism in that respect, assuming that it is still there. And again, if it's not, then John Wall will not be a good basketball player, in my opinion. He has to improve as a spot-up shooter because he's only been 32% over his career from deep. And to thrive alongside Beal, he's going to have to play off ball more just in general. That's where the cutting comes into play. That's where knocking down the open shots comes into play. And... Previously, he's enjoyed a frequent mid-range jumper. If you look at 2017-18, 31% of his field goal attempts came from mid-range. He made 28% of them, which is hideously inefficient. There can be no more of that because they have one of the best single offensive engines in basketball right now. And they have a system that was free-flowing, that was predicated on having a bunch of shooters on the floor at all times. And because of that, the Wizards were a league average offense last year with a roster that you would have looked at and said, that's probably the worst in basketball, certainly if Bradley Beal's not on that team. So this is a huge ego check for John Wall, who is a guy who has generally been quite confident throughout his NBA career. And I also think that he can help them a great deal because he can bring a legit threat at point guard that they didn't have last year. He can be a defensive upgrade. He can be valuable as a leader. He can be a little bit of that change in pace where it's not Beal every time or it's not Bertans every time. You have that kind of guy who can blow by you again if he's right. And in a weak East, if he plays really well, they could be a playoff team in my opinion because they just have to uproot the Orlando Magic 
who I was optimistic on coming into this year, but they have clearly disappointed me in every way. So I don't know. Am I crazy to expect that? And am I crazy to say that there is a huge deal of pressure on John Wall to perform coming into this year? No, there, there definitely is. And you talk about the changes he needs to make in his game. He's got to develop a three-point shot. If John Wall wants to stick around in his league for another five, ten years after all this rehab, he has to. He will not last in this modern changing game because his style of basketball is going out of play. To me, I think it's almost comical with the contract situation, Carson, because it's it's just like the endless cycle for the Washington Wizards at Get this great talented point guard, no chill gill. You know, you don't really build a team around him to compete. You got John Wall, a great talented point guard. They never really build a... And don't get me wrong, with a guy like John Wall, you need a bunch of shooters. And they got Brad Beal, but it's just just endless cycle of having a, top, a top-notch talent. And you just never quite compete because you're in Washington. This feels like it is way more to do with Gilbert Arenas than John Wall. Oh, I'm going to say that right now. That was a connection to 15 years ago. I thought you were going to say something about the Jan Mahimi contract or just the fact that Ernie Grunfeld was running things for 17 years and that they sucked because of that, and you went straight to Agent Zero. And honestly, I'm not sure that that was your best angle there. That felt like you were just more in pain about the fact that Arenas didn't win more in his career. No, I am. Um, Carson, to me, I think the fundamental issue with this roster now, though, is (laughs) they're not going to compete. And, And we said this... I don't understand how Washington sports franchises run because they don't make logical <laughs> decisions whatsoever. Uh, we can throw it to Dan Snyder and the Washington football team, but you knew three years ago when John Wall went down that you had to tank your that this franchise was going downhill rapidly because of his injury. Because you're not going to be able to build a compete a competitive team with a guy on a forty million dollar contract. What should the Wizards do? in your basketball opinion, moving forward to one day, what one magical day, maybe 10, 20 years from now, when the Wizards can compete for a title. They have to make this work. And listen, that's not going to help them contend for a title, but we are not living in a world where anyone is going to take three more years, $133 more million of John Wall. So they have to find that all-star ceiling that is in there. And I think Scotty Brooks is a capable coach. I think that he was a good offensive coach this season, innovating that system. John Wall doesn't necessarily fit cohesively into that system. But I do think that with some tinkering, Beal is the kind of talent who can complement almost anyone offensively because he's that kind of off-ball weapon. He's also fantastic with the ball in his hands. He's a really good passer. He's a dynamic shooter. And that's really what his initial role was alongside Wall. It was that great catch-and-shoot guy. So he's going to be okay. I think he's going to get his no matter what, but they have to understand. And when I say they, I really mean John Wall because he's the one who has to come to terms with this. It's not going through him. And I think that there's talent on this team because of those two in Bertans. And I guess Thomas Bryant, there's a lot. And Rui, Rui Hachimura. But there's a lot of filling out that has to be done if they want to actually make the playoffs and contention in my humble opinion in Washington is really not in the question. It hasn't been since the days of Unseld and, and Elvin Hayes and the gang. Uh, from poor franchise to poor franchise, uh, I'm going to go on and talk about uh, a player for the Los Angeles Clippers. Uh, I've got Paul George as my next guy. Um, Last season, this season, Paul George had nothing to prove. Coming off a year, he averaged 29-9-4 against the Blazers in the playoffs. Member of the All-NBA first team, third in MVP voting. 
Paul George balled out for the Thunder, and GM Lawrence Frank justifiably swung for the fences. But he's got to prove everybody wrong after this abysmal season. Paul George statistically shot worse than any other Clipper in these playoffs, 39.8%. He led the Clippers in turnovers. He had six games in the playoffs where he scored 15 points or less, and in games four and seven against the Nuggets, he only scored 10 points. And we're sitting there saying, oh, well, Kawhi disappeared in game seven too. Yeah, but Kawhi's been the man on a championship team before evidenced by the Raptors, and I wouldn't say he was the man in 2014 with the Spurs, but he did his part against LeBron. Paul George has been that man on an Eastern Conference losing Pacers squad, and he's been the man <laughs> on a Thunder squad that exited in the first round. There are levels to this. George is under contract with the Clippers through this season. He's got a player option in 2022. I don't expect him to get moved. Uh, but the Clippers simply gave up too much to just ship him out again. But if we see Pandemic P again in the 2021 playoffs, the Clippers, without a dominant interior presence for Kawhi, just another wing star in Paul George, they're going to have serious troubles. It was so crazy to hear first-team All-NBA come out of your mouth because obviously Paul George deserved that spot. He was deservedly third in MVP voting. There was a surge, and it only lasted like a week or so, but he was playing at such an unbelievable level for a month and a half where I was like, he could really come and insert himself into this MVP conversation and potentially win it. And he was first-team All-NBA one year ago in an NBA with Kawhi Leonard, Kevin Durant, and LeBron James, who will all in all likelihood end as top 20 players of all time, and he beat out all of them for this spot. And then you look at the decrease to this season, where he played just 48 games, and you can attribute that to injury and load management and all those things, but he just clearly was coasting. And we talked about it so many times, Logan, that a lack of an assertive Paul George is the reason why we did not trust this Clippers team to go out there and win the title. And by and large, we were right about that. Averaging 21.5 points per game, which was his lowest since he was 22 years old. And of course, his minutes were down. So per 36, he wasn't at that level. But that just emphasizes to me the passivity and the coasting that defined the season for Paul George because it was always, ooh, it's PG. He's a borderline top 10 guy in the league. He's going to kick it into gear. And then came the playoffs, and he averaged 20.2 a game on 40% shooting and had maybe the worst three-game stretch that I can remember from a star, averaging 11.3 points a game on 21% shooting as the Clippers lost two of those games to the seven seed. And then he was good for most of the Denver series, but then he ended with 10 points on four of 16 shooting. And that is just what has come to define his legacy. And I don't think that it's necessarily 100% fair because being the best player on conference finals teams that were really competitive with LeBron and the Heat is an unbelievable accomplishment. But at the same time, we are now seven years removed from that. And it's time to go and do something else. And last year, meaning the 2018-19 season, was that something else? That was, whoa, we have never seen Paul George like this, even in his Indiana days. And then he regressed to the point where We've harped on it before, but half of his shots are coming from three, and he's not playing heavy minutes. And he just never really seemed to find his identity and his confidence as a superstar with this Clippers team, and that ended up being the difference. The Lakers had two superstars. The Denver Nuggets, for all intents and purposes, had two superstars. The LA Clippers had one who happened to have one off game, and it killed them because nobody else could step up and compensate. And it's go time now because PG is a guy who, especially by the average NBA fan, will be maligned and will be a laughing stock for his entire career if he doesn't capitalize on this opportunity because that was a haul, a haul that the Clippers gave up to get him. And their franchise will be in the gutter if this experiment does not work out. Carson, I want to ask a fundamental basketball question. So we saw two finals teams 
this season, Lakers and Heat, big man and a wing presence. Do you think the Clippers can work with having two wing guys as their or any team for that reason, Harden and Westbrook, two guards or two forwards, can that work to win a title? Of course. We just saw it with well, we saw it with the Heat teams. We saw it with the Warriors. We saw it with the Raptors team last year. I think it just happened to be that those were the formula for both of those teams. Paul George, when he's at his best, can certainly be the second best guy on a title team, but he was not at that level this year. And there are other things that need to be addressed with the Clippers, but he is a huge reason that they were held back from winning a title that Coming into the season, a lot of people presumed was theirs to lose, including me. They were my preseason pick. And then after about a month and a half on the court, I was like, I'm not sure I feel so great about this anymore. I see two guys who look unstoppable every night and another guy who just is not at that level in Paul George. I want to talk about a guy who is in a completely different realm. And that is Marvin Bagley III. I just wrote a story on his brother Marcus and his grandfather Joe Caldwell. If you want to go check that out, I retweeted it. But... Marvin is playing on a Kings team that obviously took a step back this year, and there was so much buzz and anticipation around them, particularly with you, Logan, as a something of a Sacramento Kings fan. This was obviously a disappointing season, and of course, we only got to see Marvin for 13 games as well, but in those 13 games, we saw his points per game, rebounds per game, and assists per game all drop slightly, along with his field goal percentage, his two-point percentage, his three-point percentage, and his free throw rate. So not exactly an encouraging second campaign, even though, of course, injuries are what really took it away. I didn't see him get better in any substantive way. He's a guy who still has some pretty glaring holes in his game. He is so dependent on his left hand. At times, it's kind of hilarious. You watch him and he loves, people talk about spin move Pascal Siakam. Bagley has the same thing, and he will try from any angle to shoot the ball with his left hand, and it's just not the kind of thing you expect from a former second overall NBA pick. I think that he needs to refine his post game as well along that same vein, having just more of a variety of moves because he's been terrible out of the post through two years. He was in the 26th percentile as a rookie out of the post and in the fourth percentile last year. So you might as well just not throw it in there at all. And he needs to have that to be an effective offensive player, in my opinion, unless he's going to be more of a role guy. If he needs to be a star, he needs to have that in his game. And he also needs that outside shot desperately because on a smaller sample with a shorter three-point line, we saw him shoot 40% from deep in college. He's shooting 28.8% in the NBA, and that is not going to cut it, especially with his lack of a post game. He needs to be that kind of guy who can be a dynamic rim-running threat, which he is. He's also a fantastic offensive rebounder, and that's always stood out in his game. But right now, those are kind of the only buckets he's getting consistently. He needs that three. He needs that refined post game. He needs that right hand. And he's also kind of a tweener defensively, which I think is a bit of a concern. And we can see that can put legitimate ceilings on a player. It's one of my things with John Collins, who is so good offensively, but defensively is an eternal liability. And that puts a ceiling on his value as a player. And I kind of see some of that with Bagley. Although, of course, right now, he doesn't have the refined offensive game. So after two years, Bagley is a guy who I really liked. I certainly didn't like him as much as Luka. I didn't like him as much as Aiden, who are the guys who he will inevitably be tied to because he is sandwiched in between them. But I have way more questions than answers with Marvin Bagley. Meanwhile, Luka is playing at an MVP level and carrying his team to a couple of wins against a super team in the playoffs. And that's a comparison he will never be able to avoid, but that's not what is driving this for me. It's just... This felt like a wasted year for this entire Kings team where they didn't really get any answers. They didn't see, okay, are we in that playoff conversation? Are we not because of injuries and because of poor coaching and all these things that kept them from really getting those clear answers? They were also starting to pick up right when the pandemic took place. And now they need that direction 
and it is going to be decision time. They're going to have to make some real franchise-altering moves if this season does not go in the direction they want, which I think it probably won't because I don't really see the upside. And Bagley is tied heavily to that. They need to see, is he one of the guys we want to hold on to, or is he one of the guys that we want to abandon? So glad you said that, Carson. You know, it flows so nicely into my next guy. Hi, Luke Walton. It's me again. Um, I don't get how you can inherit such a run-and-gun, fast-paced Kings team after missing the playoffs with LeBron on it, on your roster. Like, yeah, he suffered an injury. But that has literally not been done since 2005 when Bron was 19 with Big Z, Drew Gooden, and Jeff McGinnis with him. So I want you to take a look at the Kings like you said. I don't think you can put it all on Luke Walton from last season because he was without a guy like Marvin Bagley. And if we had seen a full season, I don't think the Kings' fortunes change, but maybe we see a few more wins, a little more promise. But they made no improvement defensively whatsoever. They were 20th rating in 2019 and in 2020. But they did take a step back offensively, I'm happy to announce. From ninth most points scored per game in 2019 to 22nd in 2020. From 5th in pace in 2019 to 20th with the league's fastest point guard. And Darren Fox averaged less assists and more turnovers than with Jaeger in 2019. If I was the Kings, he'd already be gone. Although I don't think he's going anywhere for this upcoming season. But without proving anything, without a playoff push, I think Luke Walton has to be gone. You were calling for his head last year in the first year of his contract, and honestly, I understand it. He's just clearly, in my opinion, not a good NBA coach, and I think that he will forever live on the fact that he was 37-2 and two or whatever when Steve Kerr was the one who had already established everything with that team. The pace is the most mind-blowing stat to me of all time, and I remember this was something we highlighted after their first four games. They started 0-4, and we were like, the Sacramento Kings are 28th in pace. Why is that happening? And... Some people in the Kings fandom were saying, oh, it's because they just played in India and they're just lagging. They're a little bit slow right now. Okay, fine. It never really got better. And it's just so foolish. I think that this roster does need to be reconstructed if their goal is to be even close to a contender, if it's to be a quality playoff team in the West. And I think that we just have to acknowledge that even though we can like individual guys like Rishon Holmes and Bielitz and these guys who I think are good NBA players, you just need more than that to make the playoffs in the West. And Bagley has to be part of that equation, in my opinion. And again, it's just a roster that showed some promise, but is clearly imperfect. So let's move on. Who is someone else who you think has a bunch to prove going into this next season? I just brought up a coach in Luke Walton, and there's another guy that I think in the coaching ranks uh, needs to prove something big this upcoming season, and it's Doc Rivers. Now, for career as a whole, Doc Rivers has nothing to prove. A long career, 14 seasons in the league, an all-star appearance, and then two finals appearance, uh, two finals appearances uh, with the Celtics and a championship that has been absolutely milked to death. Uh, outside of that, a 2012 Eastern Conference loss in seven to the Heat, and that's the closest that a guy who's had former finals MVP Kawhi Leonard, the three-headed monster of CP3 Blake and DeAndre Jordan, not to mention, those teams had great supporting casts nearly every year. Guys like Jamal Crawford, J.J. Redick, uh, Mo Spates. I mean, these lineups were great top to bottom, and they couldn't even muster a Western Conference appearance finals, uh, a Western Conference finals appearance, excuse me. No doubt in my mind that Doc Rivers is a good coach. He's consistently in the playoffs, but he's got to win. Maybe a trip back east fixes that issue. I think he'll provide better leadership and knowledge to a young roster than Brett Brown did, but 
what we've seen from Doc's teams, especially coming off a 3-1 blown lead to the Nuggets with a lead in Game 5, this is probably the biggest prove-it year for Doc because if the 76ers... Uh, the 76ers are a lock for the playoffs in the East, obviously. But if we see the Sixers go out in the first round, which I think is a major possibility with teams like Miami and Boston having to compete with with mid-seeds like that, Doc Rivers could very well be one and done in Philadelphia if he doesn't have results in his first year. Although, Philadelphia has obviously proven that they uh, give a pretty long leash with a guy like Brett Brown never showing anything. Uh, I I expect big things from Doc with a great roster in Philly, but um, we're getting to the point where Doc Rivers as a coach is getting a little too old with not enough results. Well, Logan, much like we played into each other's hands with the Bagley and Walton thing. We're doing it again here, a little give and go, because I want to talk about Joel Embiid, because I think that the greater theme is, and we could easily have Ben Simmons on this list, we could have Al Horford on this list, or Tobias Harris if we felt that they were in a position where they're likely to prove something. I just think that those guys are not likely to do that. Part of the reason that I am generally a doc defender, I don't think he's a brilliant schematics coach. I do think that people undersell other parts of his resume. For example... The fact that he led some pretty miserable Orlando rosters. And yes, a few of those years he had Tracy McGrady. But his first year, I'm pretty sure he was dealing with literally just dudes off the scrap heap. And they were a plus 500 team. I think he is a great floor-raising coach. And I think we saw that with last year's Clippers team. That won 48 games and took a couple of playoff games off the Warriors. With a roster that was just not of that caliber. I think that Rivers has a difficult but a very important task here in Philadelphia. And that is understanding how... These two young stars mesh, not just personality-wise, but stylistically. And also, they need to put better pieces around these guys because we've seen it in years past. Go back to Ben Simmons' rookie year when literally just having two shooters the caliber of Marco Bellinelli and Ersan Ilyasova and not playing these guys alongside people whose preference is not to shoot the three like Al Horford and Tobias Harris, we saw how much better these two could be together. And we have seen how much better Joel Embiid can be than what he was last year. And this is an important number, Logan. Joel Embiid will be 27 years old this season. He is almost exactly a year younger than Anthony Davis, who we just saw assert himself as a top five player in basketball and win a championship. And when it comes to Embiid's underachievement this year, you can blame the basketball fit on Ben Simmons all you want, because obviously he is such an obvious non-shooter. But he gave constant effort. He was playing at an unbelievable defensive level. He produced and he was working his butt off while Embiid coasted. Played 29.5 minutes per game. His scoring dropped from the previous season by 4.5 points per game. His rebounds per game dropped by 2. And you can look at that and say, but the per 36 is similar. But it reminds me of what we had with Paul George. Why is your star guy coasting through a regular season when especially for this Philly team, under normal circumstances, home court would have been huge. They were the best home team in basketball and one of the worst road teams. And you end as the 6th seed. So you forfeit that privilege. And like I was saying with Paul George, yes, you have the right to coast when you have that championship pedigree, and obviously this is a results-oriented world that we are living in. So when a team has dramatic underachievement like the Sixers or the Clippers, we are more likely to look back and say, you are at fault for that. And then yes, Embiid was good in the playoffs, putting up 30-12 and a game with Simmons out, but I honestly don't care about that. They got swept, and they didn't have their second-best player on the floor. We have to see these guys coexist and He took 16 threes in those four games, made 25% of them. I just think it's stupid that he's still taking that many, especially when Simmons isn't on the floor, so there isn't that same pressure to be a floor spacer. Now, Horford is still there, Tobias Harris is still there, and that has to be worked out, and it probably won't be. And we will probably have another underachieving season from the Sixers. 
They were also minus 53 and 145 playoff minutes with him on the floor versus just minus two and 47 minutes without him. So they were playing better as far as team success without him on the floor. Of course, I don't think that's going to be the case long term. But Joel Embiid should be an obvious top 10 player in the NBA right now. And in my opinion, he's obviously not in that group. And as I mentioned earlier, you can 100% say that Ben Simmons has something to prove too. You can say Doc Rivers has something to prove too. And when I look at Simmons, because he's already been here for a couple years, he has to make up for the fact that the last time we saw him in the playoffs, he sucked and he was dismantled by Brad Stevens. He still has one of the most glaring weaknesses of any star in basketball. And the Sixers were just slightly better with him off the court for the second straight season than they were with him on the court. Those are all totally fair criticisms. And if you're looking at who is the better basketball player? Now, for this season, it may have been Simmons just because of regular season effort, but if I'm taking one guy to win me a championship, make no mistake about it, based on talent, Embiid should be the clear choice, but that is not the case right now. And also, as the best guy, as the 26-year-old, who is supposed to have the more refined game and who averaged 27-13 and 13 a year ago, the shortcomings fall on him more than on anyone else. So, it's time to go now. It's time to see if he gets to that level, and it's time to see if Doc can help foster that in him, can help bring him to that level, because I do think Doc commands a different level of respect from these players as a guy who has that championship identity, and I also think is just a strong voice in any locker room, but it's not a matter of skill for Embiid. It's a matter of consistent effort and health, which is in part out of his hands, but he's never played more than 64 games in a season, which on the verge of 27-year-old, 27 years old is a little bit unconventional. I just think he's obviously such a phenomenal athlete and has such unbelievable footwork and skill out of the post and is such a defensive presence when he's locked in, but he wasn't all of those things as much this season as he should have been. We need to see dominant Joel Embiid, and I think there's a very real world in which we do see him get back to that 27-13 and 13 level, and hopefully it leads to more winning because the Sixers will continue to trot out an immensely talented roster that just doesn't quite fit, and Embiid is the kind of guy who can make up for those issues with his talent, and we didn't see it last year. So, Carson, in your hypothetical here, you say that the 76ers don't make any drastic moves, they don't move Horford, they don't move Harris. How does Embiid's game flourish this next season if they still have these drastic spacing issues? Who's going to take Horford or Harris? That's my issue. Maybe you can get someone to swing Harris, but he's dramatically overpaid. Horford's deal is completely untouchable, and these aren't expirings. It's not like you can then use this to take a load off your cap and acquire an asset by getting someone from the Sixers. That's not happening at this point. So these guys are detriments to any team in basketball, in my opinion, in a lot of ways. And that is going to make life harder on these two. And so it is the responsibility of Doc Rivers to figure that out. And I just don't know, man. Tobias Harris was such a bad addition to this team. He's so clunky. He's another guy who plays kind of big, and he wants to take those 20-footers and those shots out of the high post. And yeah, he's a good three-point shooter, but it's not his preference. He can't play off these two. And I was fooled a little bit by Horford because I thought he can get out there on the perimeter and defensively, wow, he's going to be great and as a playmaker. That has been an absolute disaster. So when it comes to how Simmons and Embiid coexist, I think you just need to try new things. Maybe it's more Simmons-Embiid pick and roll because we haven't seen much of that in their NBA careers. And part of that is probably because in a Simmons-Embiid pick and roll, you know they are both barreling to the bucket because neither of them really wants to pop out. And if Embiid does pop out, you're happy with that outcome. But maybe you just take advantage of the fact, kind of like what we see from LeBron and AD, 
These these are two bulldozers who you are not going to be able to stop even if you know what's coming from them. I don't know. They need to find a way to make Simmons more effective in the half court to where it doesn't take away from Embiid, where he is most comfortable. And they just have to make it work this year or else I think we see them move off of one of these two guys. And in my opinion, despite being the more talented, Embiid is the one who has to prove more in that situation because they will look at Simmons and say he has more room to grow, he's younger, he is more reliably healthy, he has the mentality that we want on our team, he's giving constant effort, he clearly wants to play that kind of winning basketball, and Embiid did not show that this year, and it's time to kick into gear and do that. Well, Carson, I'm going to stick out east uh, with a, another team that decided to go with a big lineup for last season. Uh, I'm going to talk about the Atlanta Hawks. Um, and I think 2021 is a big proven year for the pair of young Hawks wings that came out of the 2019 draft. Uh, I think DeAndre Hunter had a better season, obviously 12 points per game, four and a half boards, solid defense, uh, and over 35% shooting when three-point shooting was his biggest concern out of the draft. As for Reddish, considered the stronger offensive player, only shot 38% from the field and 33.2% from deep. And this is for the young Hawks team, I guess, as a whole as well, because uh, as you mentioned earlier, with guys like John Collins, uh, Kevin Herter, Trey Young, Jabari Parker, they've got to bring in some defense because they're just abysmal. Uh, to me, the Hawks made a huge mistake when they traded for Clint Capella. I don't know what Capella, I guess uh, it's a good short-term move. I think the Atlanta Hawks win some more games next season because they have a rim runner that Trey Young can play off of and get screens, but for the future, I think it's a foolish move because personally, I think an ideal Hawks lineup is John Collins at the five, Hunter at the four, Reddish at the three, and then Trey Young at the one. Just because I think it works more in the modern sense of the NBA, you're stretching the floor out completely. Your offense is going to be insane. Obviously, you have concerns with Collins playing the defensive center role, but back to the point, this team had the worst defense in the league last season by opponents, uh, opponents points per game. Uh, the reason I focus on Hunter and Reddish as starters here in the future is I think they can become two elite starters in the league. Hunter, an undersized four, can stretch and run the floor. He defends four positions. The smaller frame Reddish, you run at the three in the hopes that he can become an elite level scorer, which I think if you can get him back confident in his shot and get a certain consistent stroke down with Reddish, I think he has potential. Uh, I think it's a bigger year for Reddish because Hunter clearly is not going anywhere with his defensive prowess. He will stick around the league. But I honestly, Carson, I think that the issue on this Hawks team, yes, the Capella trade, as I mentioned, is going to be detrimental for the future. But I don't think, I, I question, they can grow. I question whether these two young guys can truly develop as offensive superstars with a guy like Trey Young always having the ball in his hand. They don't do anything offensively outside of, Hey, Trey. Hey, Trey. Hey, 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 Trey. Hey, Trey, you want to pass me the Hey, Trey. Hey, they just sit there and they wait for Trey to pass him the ball because he just sits there and dribbles the entire time. I think it's a proven year for this Hawks team as a whole. I think it's a proven year for Reddish and Hunter to see if they can grow as players and stick around the league. I think it's a proven year for John Collins and Clint Capella and see if they work. I think there's a lot of questions for this Hawks roster, but the answer could be these two young, talented wings. I think you touched on a lot of important stuff there, and to me the takeaway is there is so much uncertainty with this Hawks team this year and so many guys who have to prove their worth, and I think it starts with Trey Young, who obviously just put up incredible historic numbers at 21 years old, but whether you like it or not, when you produce at that level young, the pressure to win starts coming sooner, and it is also put on him by the fact that we are seeing young guys do incredible things in 
in great situations with Luka, with Donovan Mitchell, with Jason Tatum, all being the best guy on playoff teams so early in their careers. Now, they were all dealt a much better hand than Trey Young, but of course, there's also the question of stylistically, is he as cohesive to winning? And I think that when you look at how do you build the best team around Trey Young, a lot of people's instincts is to look for those 3 and D wings, the kind of guys who can feed off of him and who can compensate for his shortcomings on the defensive end, which is why I think that Hunter and Reddish both made sense as picks. And I always liked Reddish a little more just because he moves more like a basketball player to me. He's more fluid. There's a little bit more passing instinct there. I think that he has probably the sweeter shooting stroke of the two of them, but at the same time, Cam Reddish has never produced. And he got significantly better as the season went on after a terrible start where he just looked outmatched on the defensive end, was not knocking down shots, continued to improve, but he needs to get to another level. DeAndre Hunter needs to get to another level. And I do think that What's important to keep in mind is these guys are going into their second years, and I think that there are a bunch of guys from this past draft who are really unproven and who there are huge question marks about. I look at R.J. Barrett, Kobe White, Darius Garland, Jarrett Culver, who honestly, I don't even know if there are questions. I think he might just suck. These are guys who, (laughs) and I always talk about it, rookie guards are inefficient. They took that to another level, and they were on terrible teams, and they, some of them showed flashes of good stuff. I think all of them except Culver really did, but... There's also some question marks there, and Reddish and Hunter especially, at least to me, have probably slightly higher floors, but we'll see what they turn into, and I think it's important to where the direction of this team goes because they need those kind of consistent defensive presences and those kind of guys who are going to knock down shots around Trey because I have my questions about John Collins. I don't know how Capella fits, and I don't think this Hawks team is very good going into next season because I'm just left with so many more questions than answers. Man, Carson, I am looking at, (laughs) you say Jared Culver might just flat out suck. I'm looking at his basketball reference page from his rookie season. I just wanted to get some numbers. 63 games. He's got negative win shares. That has to be almost impossible. Yeah, it's incredible. You mentioned some of these other guys as well. I think that R.J. Barrett has some certain concerns uh, in New York. I think you want to talk about getting Delta crappy hand, a guy like Trey Young, R.J. Barrett got dealt an even worse one. They said, hey, kid, I bet you come in here and you beat this. You save, save New York, please. Save the Giants, save the Jets, save the New York Guardians, save the Knicks while you're at it, uh, save the Islanders. I don't know how they're playing, but uh, R.J. Barrett got dealt a crappy hand. I think Tyler Hero showed a lot of promise, and I was going to make a case that the Hawks should have maybe traded for a guy like Hero, but then I realized Hero's growth isn't nearly what it is if he's not on that Heat squad. Um, who do you, Carson, out of the guys that we have mentioned from this 2019 draft class, who has the most approved? Logan, I honestly can't believe what we're doing right now. This is so beautiful. I have one more guy who is not actually from that draft class, but he was a rookie last year. Michael Porter Jr. is the last guy on my list. He actually has a shared slot with another Denver Nugget in Jamal Murray. But for MPJ, this is a guy who has already been on the big stage and obviously tremendously talented, but it is time to prove that he can compete defensively. It's time to prove that he's not going to make these boneheaded plays and possibly be a liability in the biggest minutes because of that. Time to prove that his ego isn't going to be a problem and that he doesn't think he's the best player on the floor with Jokic and Murray. If he can get some athletic explosion back, I think it takes him and this Denver team to another level as an offensive threat. But even if he doesn't, if he can just bring that combination of shooting and rebounding and cutting that he was given by God, he has those basketball instincts and that shooting ability, and then just dedicate himself fully to defense, 
learn more about how to read the pick and roll on that end, overcome some of the stiffness that has plagued him that I assume is caused by back problems. He can be a really, really good basketball player. I'm not sure physically if he can get that explosion if he and if he can get that nimble defensive ability that we need from him, but I think that he has to get there because otherwise... This year's Michael Porter Jr. is not necessarily a big-time player. Like, yeah, he's a great shooter of the basketball, and he does the little things as a cutter and cleaning up on the offensive glass, but he also has some serious question marks and some negatives, but of course, he was also a rookie. And compared to some of the other guys, like maybe a Kobe White, who was terrible for most of the year and then really had a hot shooting month, or an R.J. Barrett, who was a guy who needed exceptional spacing and was given none of it, MPJ probably showed more promising things this past season than those guys. But I also think when you compare him to where some of the guys from his class are, and admittedly it's different because he's only played one year, he is certainly behind them when you have Luka and Triple J and Trey Young. It's just a different level. And the reason that I say Murray is the other one, I think it's pretty simple. He averaged 18.5, 4-5 on 46, 35, 88 splits in the regular season. He averaged 26.5, and 5-6.5 on 51, 45, 90 splits in the playoffs. I think that there was undeniable improvement. We've talked about it at nauseum. He was a better finisher at the rim. He was a better decision maker and playmaker. He was more comfortable with that step back three, which unlocks his ability to create for himself at any moment. But it was also a magical postseason run. And he's a guy who's always stepped up to the biggest moment. So I think we have to see where he falls in between those two because that to me determines this team's ceiling along with what level MPJ can get to, but more Murray because Murray is, in my opinion, far more likely, far more likely to be the second star on this team than MPJ. A thousand times over. He already was this year, but I mean to sustain it. And if they are winning a championship, he's their second best guy. And so a lot of that falls on him to keep up the level that we saw from him, which was a level we had never seen before. As for MPJ, I was a guy that, you know, I came on here and I said that maybe you deal him for another weapon for Murray and Jokic, which I still think is a real possibility, but uh, he blew me away. Uh, his shooting ability, his, as you said, his God-given abilities. Michael Porter Jr. has superstar ability. He is 21 years old. I know he had his back issues, but there's a reason that these Nuggets took a flyer on him in the draft because they believed he could be that guy. Uh, as for Murray, I don't know how you come... Uh, this is a... Uh, this is almost like Paul George coming off of last season, I think, Carson, to an extent, where you're just so hot, people are expecting so many things out of you. If Jamal Murray comes back out here and puts up 18 points a game like he did in the regular season, it is going to be an extreme letdown. He's got to come out here. He's got to put up 22, 23 a night. I think the Nuggets got to win 50 games. He has got a huge responsibility this upcoming season to win games and get the Nuggets, honestly, back to the Western Conference Finals. That should be the goal for this Nuggets squad. And he's the kind of guy who has the mentality where he's going to continue to approve, where he's never going to shy away from the biggest moment, but that progression needs to continue. He is so young. He has taken so many steps as is. He is so immensely talented, and I just want to see that all come together. So there's a lot of guys who have a bunch to prove because this was a crazy season that included a bunch of injuries to the most relevant stars in the sport that included some major collapses and disappointments that included an emerging star or two, including Jamal Murray, who now have something to prove going into next year. Some guys who maybe are being prematurely built as busts. We'll see if they can rally and correct that opinion of the public. And so there are all these dynamics surging into next season, 
And already, I am so excited <laughs> to get back to more basketball because look at all these storylines that we have, all these guys who have so much to prove. There's so much talent in the league right now, and I just cannot wait to see it all go down again. So that's going to do it for us here today. I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.